0: I don't like to talk about sophisticated hacks because it makes the criminal look good. But what dares me a bit is, again, the lack of integrity that people are abusing the weaknesses and processes without feeling bad about it. And that's something that will buy back.
1: Welcome to the Payments Powerhouses podcast, where we discuss current trends with the movers and shakers in the fintech industry, brought to you by 2C2P. Asia's leading payment solutions provider. Hi, everyone. I'm Twindo. Welcome to Payments Powerhouses. Today, I'm speaking to Stefan Kuhn, 2C2P's Director of Risk and Compliance. We'll be talking about everything from the complexity in this space to what keeps him up at night. Hi, Stefan, and welcome.
0: Hi, hello. Thanks for having me today.
1: Thanks for joining us. So we'll jump straight in. You're a highly experienced veteran in the risk and compliance space. Tell us more about the complexity of staying compliant and up-to-date.
0: So when we're looking at the payments industry, we have two main areas of compliance. One is the industry compliance. That could be card schemes, it could be security standards. And the other area that we're looking at is the regulatory compliance. So the um, industry compliance has reached a certain level of maturity. So this is like something that we have for many, many years. And in the regulatory space, we have a lot of countries stepping up with more new and additional regulation and sometimes even licences.
1: So if you're looking at the current landscape, do you think compliance is too stringent right now?
0: But this is an evolving topic, and we have countries that just start putting out regulation or licenses while others have already reached a certain level of maturity. So I think it's too early to say there is too much choice, too stringent. So the key for me is that regulators are willing to have dialogue and reach out to define standards so that they're meaningful. And I think that's happening in most jurisdictions.
1: And what about compliance and innovation? There is a balance between that. Do you think compliance can potentially impact innovators?
0: Absolutely. You can stiff any way of innovation, any way of competition if you want to. I think what we observe here in the region is the opposite. So innovation has been a topic for regulators, and we have seen that in two different ways. One way was here in Singapore, MAS explicitly issued licenses for digibanks and said, we want more competition and we want more innovation. So they were not happy with the current landscape and said there's not enough of it. So they kind of enticed that bringing up new licenses. And then the other way is that innovation takes place in sandboxes. So there's room to play with new ideas, new technology, new processes, which is then tightly supervised by a regulator to form a view whether that's something they want to like bring into the landscape or not.
1: This sounds like a great example of how rules and regulation can actually support innovation.
0: They can, yes. Singapore is, is our headquarter and we have a very good experiences with MAS and their willingness to, to drive innovation.
1: And what do you think could help regulations be more effective?
0: First of all, dialogues between the regulators. Certain countries, they already have a certain experience and amount of regulation out there, while others are still finding what's the right balance for their particular country and landscape. And the other one is the dialogue between the industry and the regulators. Usually it takes place that regulators invite for consultation processes in which we can take part. And the other one is that we're forming groups to also voice our interests. So in Singapore, that's, for example, SFA where you have an association and we are a member of it so that we have a way of like an avenue to go back to regulators and get across our views.
1: Are there any current conversations that you're keeping an eye on right now in terms of this dialogue between the regulators and industry experts?
0: Yeah. So at the moment, we're focusing on getting new things going in Vietnam. So we will pitch for certain approvals in that area. We have ongoing conversations in, in Singapore and Thailand. I uh, find that not holding back. I think that's all very encouraging.
1: Can you give us a snapshot of what's happening with payment fraud and security issues in the last year or two?
0: COVID has seen a a huge boom in e-commerce, right? So numbers going through the roof, which is great for 2C2P. At the same time, we have also seen an increase of fraud. So that's something where I think on all numbers or all indicators, there has been an uptrend, and that is across the board, across all industries. That's an issue, that's a trend that requires more attention
1: and what are these bad actors focusing on when it comes to fraud.
0: So we see two different kinds of bad actors. So the first one is what we call the first party fraud, and that's your own customer turning against you and cheating you. So that is for example someone I order a bottle of wine online and then I call and say I never received it. So if I trigger that process and there's no proof the bottle of wine has been delivered, the money goes back. And that's despite the bottle of wine being perfectly delivered, but because there was no record or no trace, that's something that was called in the past friendly fraud. And I think it's kind of like the wrong word because there's nothing friendly about it. So this was what we usually talk. That's what we usually call first-party fraud. So this was an example for first-party fraud. And then the other fraud we see is, is what we call third-party fraud, where someone other than the consumer or the customer of the merchant is committing the fraud. So the, the key trend here is ATO, account takeover, And that is something where someone takes your account, your credentials to then go and shop.
1: And in both scenarios, what's the impact to the merchant and the payment processor? Who takes responsibility?
0: So when we talk about the first party fraud, it is actually on the merchant. So the moment the merchant is not able to confirm, to evidence, to prove that they have given the, the service, have given the product, then that's something where they would cover that out of pocket. The key issue is that sometimes the process is very, very long winded. And people would just settle. Like so instead of like thinking, how can I prove that you actually get it and wasting three hours, I might give you the ten dollars back. And that's an issue and, and that's why it was like called friendly fraud because it's something that's like snowballing. So something that's meant as a good gesture of like, okay, let's not hackle for a long time. We now see that snowballing to more and more because once people find out they can get away with it, they do it again.
1: But I've seen more and more checkout processes where you can automatically go into FAQs ask for a return or ask for raise an issue to say, hey, I haven't received that. And I get a response within like a couple of minutes. So it feels like a lot of companies have automated the process. So they're not even investigating certain values.
0: Yeah, so that's why we see a lot of abuse. So where refund policies are easy, simple. The key issue is the more easy you make it for a consumer, the more prone something is for fraud. So for example, if you order something from a supermarket and return it, most people do not have the time and the resources to go through it. It's all discarded. The moment the delivery comes back, it's discarded. So many, many people just return five items and it's 10, and no one does the counting, but you still get a full read. So there's something wrong on the consumer side and a lack of integrity of abusing that opportunity and then becoming criminals without feeling that they have been a criminal. Right. But for merchants, the problem, again, is snowballing and the total amounts that they have to spend every year is growing and growing and growing, and that is definitely a concern.
1: So... We've taken a look at the merchant. What role does the consumer play in this?
0: Well, you can observe that people get away with stuff, and there's no sense that they actually turn into criminals. So I'll give you an example. So in Germany, we had huge media coverage on students that were purchasing online stuff like wine. And then obviously, sometimes the bottle falls over and breaks. So they call the merchant and say, oh, it was delivered broken. And bam, they have a refund. So they broke it during a party and it was not broken during delivery.
1: Is that considered fraud?
0: See, and that that awareness of like Mm. people are committing a fraud, they're criminal, is not necessarily there. Or you return something, you order two shirts and you want to return two, but you return only two, but you get a refund for two. So you think you're very, very smart by abusing the system or taking advantage of the system. In reality, you're, you're abusing it and you're a criminal. And I think there is no sanction. So no one will come after you. No one, the police will not investigate whether you kept the second shirt because the time and effort to establish that is too much. And what we observe in the industry, this behavior snowballs. People don't have a feeling I did something wrong. They don't feel that's criminal behavior. It's kind of like, it's okay. My merchant is so big. They have so many shirts. They have so many bottles of wine. It doesn't matter.
1: I could see like students egging each other on and encouraging this behavior.
0: Obviously, people talk to each other, right? Whether it's a student or whether it's it's your girlfriends, The moment you observe something and you tell them, then maybe they're tempted to do it again or try it again in yeah. a different way and get away with it. And that's kind of like something I personally don't like. In compliance, we talk about integrity. And obviously, that's anything but integrity. But that's very, very hard to tackle. What do you do? You send the police troops in and put the place upside down. But that's something that has become bigger and bigger and bigger because people don't let go and they don't understand that they are already criminals.
1: So we're seeing an increase in third party fraud and it seems to be more sophisticated and complex. Would you say that's the case?
0: Yeah, that's definitely the case. So we see that there's a lot more money, time, effort, planning involved. The use of technology, again, if you look at recent things, the OTPs, uh, scams, you just don't pull it off by getting out of bed and say, today I feel like I want to pull this scam off. right? So there's a lot of like sophistication, money and resources needed to, to do that. And that's obviously scary because then you have um, professionals that try to exploit the system and tackling that can be very, very, very tough.
1: Oh, yeah. So in this scenario of third party fraud, who suffers the most?
0: It's, it's public trust, right? So if you see that wallets can be taken over and you wake up and it's empty, those are things that were never on your mind when you de- did uh, e-commerce before, right? You went online shop, then it was good. But now you f- wake up and you find your wallet empty. Obviously, that's like can be inhibiting future growth. So we have to tackle that. We have to like make sure it's not happening again.
1: What about the intentional side? You mentioned volume because of people staying at home and the pandemic, there's more increase in volume. What other tactics are they using?
0: There's a trial and error, right? So once you try something and you get away with it, you have a learning curve. And that's what I said earlier, we see certain behaviors that repeating themselves. And I think that's an unhealthy trend. On the other hand, we also have people that thought about the weaknesses in the process. If we talk about third party fraud in how can I take over? How can I assume the identity of someone? And that is a new trend. That we haven't seen so much in the past. So usually, when we did payment authorization, we were sure that the consumer is the consumer, and there was no other party involved. That is now changing, and we see more and more of these ATOs.
1: What would you say are the most sophisticated attacks that you've seen in payment
0: frauds? Well, I don't like to talk about sophisticated attacks because it makes the criminal look good. But what what scares me a bit is again the lack of integrity that people are abusing the weaknesses in processes without feeling bad about it, and that's something that will bite back because. As a consumer, I want easy processes. I want to do one-click shopping and I want to have an easy return. But if these numbers continue to like grow, there will be changes to that. It bites back and I think this integrity issue is something that yeah, will become more and more dominant in the next couple of years.
1: What can merchants or payment processors do in terms of rules or policies that can help protect hmm. the merchant?
0: certain merchants have not really understood how much money it can cost them and what's a growing problem. So if I don't think and start tackling it now, at some point in time, becomes like untenable. So there's an issue in people maybe not taking the time. I'm always surprised when people can, with the same identity, go to the same merchant and get away with stuff multiple times. So to me, that's a key thing that's easy to fix. Someone who I suspect to have cheated on me I should have an earmark and I should find out. I see in my practice that even for larger merchants, that's not always the case. This is something that I call a low-hanging fruit. That's something you can fix very, very easily. The other point is the customer experience. If you have a, a customer that's onboarded and it comes back to you, and for example, you have a loyalty program around it, your risk of friendly fraud is usually going down. And if you combine that, I don't let you get away with cheating, even if I suspect or where I just suspect and cannot prove it, and I have a loyalty system, that, for example, is a very elegant way of making sure my fraud numbers go down.
1: So then, there's kind of a almost competition between news experience, customer retention, yes, correct, and keeping things in- compliant.
0: Yes, and and the key thing is, if you're a growing business, you don't have the luxury of like falling back on what the customer already has done. You have new transactions, first-time transactions, and then you have to c- bring together a couple of things to say, okay, is that a transaction that I think is trustworthy or not? And and that's where. Again, the payment authorization comes in the first place. But then the second thing is to look at your business, look at your risks. Let's take, for example, restaurants. Restaurants have no issues in the past, right? So no no one would ever dispute. They go to a restaurant, they eat, and then they pay. And that's the end of the story. If you look at the new environment where people order from home and then pay, for example, using their card, out of the blue, you have disputes. Mm -hmm. Saying, oh, you didn't deliver one soup, you delivered a salad or something. And that's something that people were not aware of. So awareness is is something that is the most important mitigant. Strategizing, what do I want to allow? How do I track bad behavior? Participating in industry forums. So we, TC2P, became a member of the Merchant Risk Council here in APAC. And I think that is a helpful platform to find out what people can do to mitigate or to combat fraud, and that's something that should be on everyone's agenda number one.
1: Yeah, so I understand um, the Merchant Risk Council, the MRC, for APAC was recently came or recently came to APAC in the last year or so. Could you talk a little bit about what they do?
0: So, what the Merchant Risk Council is trying to do is to bring together merchants and offer platforms and discussions so that merchants have the awareness of what's going on and can also look at what tools work and don't work. So obviously when you're like alone in your office and you start thinking about what do I do about fraud and how do I tackle that in the best way, that is not as fruitful as if you have an access to other people that say we have faced similar issues and that's how we tackle them. So what MRC is trying to do is bringing together these people into conferences, into dialogues and help people to find the best way to like keep their own business secure.
1: Oh, That's a good segue into what I want to ask you next about industry trends. So you mentioned the restaurants industry, um, so hospitality. What else are you seeing in terms of trends and insight across the industry?
0: Yeah, I think you have the traditional fraud areas, for example, in digital goods. Right? So the, the fraud rates in that industry are higher, but ticket volumes are obviously smaller. So in other industry, like for example, the airline industry, um, you have a much, much smaller number, but the ticket sizes are much, much bigger. So if you talk about an airline ticket in the $4,000 range, obviously, that's a a biggie. If you talk about a lost or income that you can't make on a sound file, that's maybe a dollar. So that's like still the same. What's changing now is that industry has to look at their own models. And I gave restaurants as an example where new business models expose businesses to new risks. And that's usually an individual discussion. And that's why I was mentioning the MRC. Because again, you can talk to other partners and see what they're experiencing and how they're tackling it.
1: So I've been doing a lot of online shopping recently. What are some common vulnerabilities to look out for, both on the consumer side and merchant side?
0: So for the merchant side, that's a perfect example for an industry that suffers from friendly fraud. So sometimes it's buyer's remorse that you didn't really want something and now you want a refund. So abusing the dispute process, to get it your way. So those are industries that suffer the most from the increases in friendly fraud. And again, there is no one size fit all recipe how they can tackle it. It's it's really, really very specific. Again, what I said earlier, having um, a customer experience where, again, you start building your own book that's preventing you from abusing it, right? So there's skin in the game. So if you abuse it and you lose privileges or you lose benefits, obviously that's a secure, that's a safeguard for the online retailer to deal with you. So for example, I think you would have shopped um, and Sephora would give you points and it would bring you to a higher tier. So the risk of you Cheating on Sephora is going down with your engagement. The more you engage with Sephora, the less likely you're to uh, cheat on them or fraud, defraud them. On the other hand, they're still suffering from new customers. Right? Someone comes in new and is not known, and obviously there's a perfect payment authorization, so the person did the purchase and there's no doubt about it, but then the person says, I never received the item, or the person sends it back and it's never it never comes back to Sephora. Right? So these return frauds are something that, cannot be tackled by looking at a transaction and say, I don't send it out because how do you know who's the person with a bad intention who is not? So that is, like, again, a problem that cannot be resolved in a one-size-fit-all but would require individual strategies on how to bring those numbers down.
1: And what do you think for this coming year retailers should look out for?
0: Well, in the first place, it's thinking about the strategy, how I want to tackle. So what are my buckets of fraud? What is my, my cost of that fraud? Again, in Friendly Fraud, we have like many, many different buckets of like what's happening. And to identify the key vulnerabilities for that particular business and then improving it so for example do i create a profile for someone right? so do i have a view of whether that's someone who's coming back to me how do i have differentiated return processes right? so someone who has a client for 50 times i give a different treatment from someone who's my first timer and i think one of the things to look into is how to also penalize bad behavior i think that's not not there right so there's no enforcement of distract and not distracting there's no process of detracting people from behaving in a bad way. And I think today, many people that cheat and fraud on companies are not aware that they're the criminals. Right. And there's no way because it's taking too much time to prove you wrong. It takes too much time to go to the police. So these traditional means of like how I go after a criminal don't work in that spot. I have to think about other ways of how I disincentivize this behavior by, for example, blocking you from future purchases or using the, the power of networks and saying, I can hand over the information to others to warn them that maybe you're, you're someone who's not worth dealing with.
1: So usually when there's a problem, awareness is kind of the first step to solving that problem. How do you think we can raise awareness, even like teach integrity
0: For the merchants, the part on the awareness is that they suffer losses, and that's usually when they look into it, right? So, the moment you have sent out 10 bottles of wine and 10 were like kind of like refunded, and then you have no 10 bottles but you refunded the money, obviously, you are very well aware of it. For the consumer, again, there is no incentive to correct a behavior that was wrong. Once you got away with something and you know there's no penalty and no one will will treat you any differently, so the moment you know you get away with it, that's what we call moral hazard. There's no corrective behavior. Mm -hmm. So you will try it again and again and again, and it becomes more and more of a problem. Obviously, I cannot talk about like how schooling, how parenting can help to, to hold up integrity, but I see that that's kind of like a deteriorating trend, and it has accelerated during COVID.
1: Would the broader industry regulators, do you think, need to get involved with friendly fraud?
0: I think they don't see a need because they will look at the merchant and say, well, you have all the means and you have all the choices. Mm-hmm. So they would not step into it. And then again, if you look at how you usually go after criminals, there are processes. So there's nothing new, but it's too time-consuming, too expensive for merchants to start the process, so they let go. And that's something obviously no regulator can fix because it's a voluntary choice of the merchant not to follow up on something. But if you have 10,000 of transactions every day and a couple of hundred that you would spend a lot of time on following up, which in the end would not necessarily prevent a new fraud, so there is, again, no incentive for a merchant to really go after it. From an industry perspective, it will be fantastic because, again, we have no disincentivation of this process, and I think that's lacking.
1: So if you were working in one of these retailers, mm. what would you be thinking about in terms of new policies or what can you do to prevent abuses of the payment system?
0: So me standing in the shoes of a, of a retailer... Is obviously difficult because I am not a salesperson, I'm a, I'm a risk person. So so my recommendation would be obviously uh, to implement different levels and different layers. And the conflict here is what's the ease of the checkout process? What's the ease to bring in a customer? If I talk to a marketing person, they say three clicks is the max, right? So if, if there's yeah. more, they're unhappy and they say, we will not max our, our revenue, we're not maxing our turnover. Um, and I get that. But if you have that, then you have as a consequence, a certain percentage of fraud and that fraud number, unfortunately, will continue to rise. So the friendly frauds that we discussed uh, will continue to rise. So my recommendation is then to have differentiated treatments. Again, if you're a returning client for the fifth time and maybe you log in with your membership number, I give you a treatment that's different and it's maybe like a one or two-click checkout process. But if I have a concern, I might have to, to expose people to a different process that they might not like necessarily, and that might lead to people that will not complete their purchase But on the other hand, I will be able to manage my fraud numbers in a different way and hopefully have less losses.
1: Yeah. So I think that it's like with my friends, if I know someone for a long time and I lend them money, Hmm. it's kind of easy. If it's like a stranger on the street asking me for money, I'm not going to get that back. So kind of have that relationship.
0: Yeah, it's kind of. So so that's what I would summarize under customer experience. So you, you have a relationship and you have a knowledge. And then obviously that affords you to have a different process.
1: Yeah. Do you think companies are equipped to work in hostile environment?
0: Look, I've been working for 25 years and there's ups and downs and there's environments that are easier and more difficult. Um, and I think everyone finds a way ultimately to deal with it, otherwise you're out of business. So yes, I think that people will find ways. And we have already discussed some of the ways to like, improve their own performances by, for example, um, seeking advice or, or reaching out to M- MRC. So I think that's like available.
1: Yeah, and growth is not linear. You kind of have to have challenges.
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: Yeah. For companies, when it comes to their people, technology, and processes, where do you see the most vulnerability?
0: I think the vulnerabilities is in, in automation, so technology. So you want to have more different processes and, and decision trees. Step one is is to have a process, but a lot of merchants get tired of like the manual work, so they want to go and automate. So then technology becomes the issue because you have to then source and pay for these uh, technologies.
1: And do you think the shift in the working environment right now with more remote work and now moving into hybrid working, will there be an impact?
0: Fraud is always on the app when you have like less personal interaction. So the moment you have remote work, um, you have all the risks if you go back to third-party fraud of phishing, of impersonization, So those numbers will automatically go up. You usually have the opposite when you when you return to work and have everyone there. Um, that fraud numbers go down. I think that's kind of like a natural trend that we will observe.
1: To wrap up, I want to ask you what keeps you awake at night and what's your worst nightmare in terms of risk and compliance breaches?
0: I think the trust and integrity part is, is the, the crucial part that keeps me... On my house because there's some answers that are not just isolated to us as one of the, the stakeholders uh, that requires answers from many stakeholders coming together as a compliance officer i think the trust in us as a payment facilitator is that we keep data safe and that we de- deploy the, the most up-to-date safety standards and as a risk manager obviously it's it's to try and keep the fraud numbers as low as possible
1: so i'm really passionate about risk and compliance What got you started in this space?
0: Oh, that's also an interesting story. I was a relationship manager back then in Germany and was offered the opportunity to work in compliance. There was a very, very timeline to implement certain policies and practices. And they said, well, you have been on the front line, so you know the corner cutting. Would you be willing to help out and basically prepare us for the audit? And I thought that would be a great career enhancer to also like work with the board and finish and complete a project in a very, very demanding timeline. And I did. And I kind of like found my calling. I'm very, very passionate about compliance. And I hope that people can hear. And so that's how my career started.
1: So it sounds like, you know, the inside tricks.
0: I guess if you want to like fight the criminals, you have to think like a crook. And I think that's true. So you have to be able to take different points of view and different seats to really come with the best and most efficient solutions.
1: And what about now? What motivates you to stay in risk and compliance?
0: I think many people look at risk or compliance as very, very dry topics, and I think they're not. Engaging with stakeholders coming out, I really enjoy and I have a lot of fun doing. So that's a great motivation to be in this topic.
1: And if you were to hire someone in your team right now, what are the qualities of someone to join this space?
0: quality that I look for the most is seeing the big picture and being able to connect dots. So you have to go through lots of data and then be able to abstract and then again put stuff into context. And that's uh, easier said than done. So it requires a lot before you really have that ability to step back and see issues and and also then formulate how you want to tackle those issues.
1: Tell us about how you ended up working in Singapore. I know you've been here for over a, a decade now.
0: Yeah, that's actually true. I came to Singapore in 2008 and I'm not sure whether I would say I ended up in Singapore. I like it very much. Um, I was in Tokyo, and my two-year assignment with Citibank came to an end. And I think I made my first trip to Singapore over a weekend to have a look at the city and learn about Singapore. And I texted someone I wanted to get in touch with, and that person was kind of around the corner on Orchard Road. So we met for a coffee, and when I flew back to Japan, I had a new job. And that was uh, uh, yeah, landing me ultimately in Singapore.
1: And here you are, 12 years on? Yeah, that's correct just over a coffee catch up that's amazing
0: that's amazing isn't it
1: yeah very amazing and since all we've been talking about is rules and regulations if you could get rid of one rule at work or at home what would it be
0: and i want to like walk around botanical garden on a sunday morning without a mask if we can drop that rule that would be fantastic
1: oh i agree completely thank you very much for being on today's episode of payments powerhouses you've made risk and compliance very engaging and it's been a pleasure talking to you
0: Thanks a lot. Have a good
1: one. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. To read more about this conversation, go to 2C2P.com/slash/blog.